We have been in our series, What is the Church? Uh, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to get a clearer view of the church. We want to see a, we want to get a clear view of the church, like of how the Lord views the church. Right? We, want to see the, we want to see the church the same way that the Lord does, uh, because the church ultimately is us. And so the clear view that we get of him, the clear view that we get of, a ch- of the church, the clear view that we get of ourselves, the clear view that we get of our purpose, you know, within the church, the purpose of the church, so on and so forth. And so um, in this series, we've been using a building like as a metaphor, right, as a metaphor for the church. And so, so far we've looked at the builder of the church, Christ. We've looked at, uh, we've looked at the path leading up to the church. We've looked at the foundation of the church. Uh, And now we're looking at seven pillars that stand on top of this foundation. Um, And so, and of course, these uh, these pillars uh, within the church, they don't stand unless the foundation is there, right? Remove the foundation of Christ and these pillars don't stand. And so last week we looked at our first pillar, which was the pillar of prayer. Uh, That was Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. That is part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus Jesus teaches, uh, obviously, about prayer. uh, And where he prays that prayer, or where he teaches his disciples to pray that prayer, that our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that prayer. And so there were three things that we looked at uh, the last time that we met about prayer. Uh, The first one being what prayer reminds us of. Uh, The second one being what prayer requires. And the third one being what prayer is rooted in. So what it reminds us of, what it requires, what it's rooted in. And the first thing that we said of what prayer reminds us of was first that it reminds us of the nature of the relationship that we have with God. Right? That throughout that passage, Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, you know, when you pray to your father... When you are speaking to your father, don't do this. Or when you pray to your father, do this. Or uh, in the actual prayer itself, he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? And so again and again, he's reminding the disciples and he's reminding us of the nature of the relationship that we have with God. If God, if he's telling us to call God our father, then by definition, then we are his children, right? And so prayer should automatically, when we go into prayer, it should always, always, always remind us of the nature of the relationship that we have with God. We relate to God in many different ways, and one of the uh, one of them, uh, which is very, very important uh, to our prayer life, is the fact that God is our Father. Right? And of course, if God is our Father, by definition, we're His children. Right? Uh, the next thing that prayer reminds us of is that uh, it reminds us of our need for Him. That when you begin to see God for who He really is, not just as your Father, but as Almighty God, as holy, as loving, as, as powerful, as judge, so on and so forth, when you begin to see God for who He really is and you kneel before an Almighty God like that in prayer, you should begin to immediately recognize your need for him. Even in the prayer itself, when Jesus is saying, this then is how you ought to pray, he says, you need to pray you know, for your provision. You need to pray you know, for your forgiveness. You need to pray for your protection. You need to pray for these things. Why? Because these are things that you can't necessarily do for yourself. And so when you kneel before an almighty God in prayer, not only should it remind you of your relationship with him, that you're speaking to your father, but it should also remind you of your deep, deep, deep need for him. So that's a couple of things that prayer reminds us of. The second thing, what prayer requires. Uh, and obviously about all of these things and all of these pillars that we're going to be talking about, there's so much more that can be said. Uh, this is kind of like a, an overview. So hopefully given time, we'll be able to kind of come back and touch on these. But anyways, uh, the second thing, what prayer requires. We said a couple of things about that. We said one, prayer requires humility. That you are not at the throne of grace because of your works. So there should be no boasting. Right? There shouldn't be any boasting like, I somehow deserve to be here, I somehow earned my right to be here, or God is going to do everything that I say because I'm so great and I'm so you know, uh, amazing and I've done all the work required that God is going to hear my prayer, that sort of No, 
You're not at the throne of grace because of your works. You're at the throne of grace because of grace. Right? And so when we come into prayer, there should be this sense of humility. Again, that you're God and I'm not. That it's only by your invitation, it's only by your grace, it's only by the sacrifice of Christ that I even have this space available to me to pray. That I can speak to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That I have an audience with God himself. Not by my works, but because of grace. So prayer requires humility. The second thing, we said prayer requires faith. That you are praying to a father who is unseen. Right? That I may not physically see him, right? We, we have plenty of evidence that we know that God is real, that God exists, yes. Uh, but I am still praying to a God who is not, like I'm not speaking f- uh, physically you know, to this person. I'm not, I don't see God in the same way that I see Noah. Right? It, that's, there's a difference there. So prayer does require faith. And then finally we said that prayer requires the word. Uh, and something that we mentioned last week as well is you're going to see how, how all these pillars uh, intertwine with one another. Today is actually we're going to be talking about the pillar of the word. Uh, but we said that prayer for last week, or the last time that we met, prayer requires the word. How is it that you can constantly pray to someone you don't know? Your relationship with God in prayer is going to be affected by what you know about him. If you don't know him, or the less you know him, that's going to reflect in your prayer life. But the more you know him, the more that's going to also reflect positively in your prayer life. Right? And, so, and that's how do we know him? By the word. The more I take time in the word, the more that he is revealed to me, the more that's going to show in, the prayer life, in my prayer life. The more I begin to understand how God speaks, the more I begin to understand the language of God, the more that's going to show in my prayer life. So prayer requires the word. And finally, we said what prayer is rooted in. Again, how is it that I can approach the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as a child? How is it that I can call God my Father and, and, and me not be lying, me not be crazy? How is it that I can actually go before God and call him Abba Father and it be true? Is it because I am perfectly humble? Is it because I am perfect in my faith? Is it because I am perfect in my, in my knowledge and application of the word? Absolutely not. Just because we were saying that prayer does need these things, prayer needs humility, prayer needs faith, prayer needs the word, we're not saying that you need to be perfect in these things, then you can begin praying. No, your prayer is not rooted, again, in your works. Your prayer is rooted in Christ, our foundation. I can come before the Father, I can come before God and call him Father because of Christ. My prayer life is rooted in Christ. Christ tells us, why why is it that we pray in Jesus' name? Right? Jesus says, when you ask, ask in my name. All these things, ask in my name, ask in my name. He, he repeats that to his disciples again and again. Why is it that we pray in Jesus' name? Well, one of these reasons is this. Because Jesus deserves the answers to prayer that we don't. Jesus deserves, Jesus has done the work to be heard by the Father. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Right? And so when we are in Christ, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are coming before the Father not by our, our works, but by his And so our prayer life must be rooted not in in our, you know, like, oh, I'm so perfectly humble and God's definitely going to hear me. Or I've been so perfect in my faith. I've been believing God for everything. Or, or, you know, I I am so theologically correct and I have all this down. I have memorized the whole Bible and this, that, and the other. Therefore, now I can come before God. No. I can come before God because my prayer life is rooted not in my works or in anyone or anything else, but in Christ. So that was the last time we met the pillar of prayer. Today, again, we are looking at the pillar of the word, right? the word of God. Uh, so if we turn our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. 
Isaiah 46 through 8, and it says, A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever forever. There is, uh, before we get into the, the uh, couple of points that we're going to get into tonight, I just want to read this quote real quick that I remember hearing that is stayed with me for a very long time. Uh, it says, where there are hearts hungry for God's word, God's voice will be heard. Where there are hearts hungry for God's word, God's voice will be heard. For those who are hungry to hear from God, for those who are hungry for the word of God, God's voice will be heard. That God always has something for the hungry. God always fulfills the hungry. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who hunger and thirst for the things of God, God always has something to meet that need, to meet that hunger. And so just remember that you know, as, we go through, as we go through today. So a couple things we're going to look at uh, when we're thinking of the Word of God, when we're thinking of the pillar of the Word of God that needs to be within the church. Uh, the first thing we're going to look at is the characteristics of the Word. Second thing, the author of the word. And the third thing, the word made flesh. Characteristics of the word, the author of the word, the word made flesh. Okay, so first thing, characteristics of the word. Before we look at characteristics of the word, if we just think of anyone's words, like if you think of my words, your words, so on and so forth, um, words have the ability to reveal. Right? Simple, that's nothing profound there. Um, words have the power to reveal a person's thoughts, a person's emotions, a person's plans, a person's character. You know, uh, these, you know, our words have the ability to do that, assuming that we're truthful and honest and, and open and so on and so forth. Right? Like our words have the ability, ability to do that. Like if I wanted to communicate um, something about me, if I wanted to communicate, um, you know, the... Bible that I have is the NIV translation, let's say. Okay, that's the, that's the version that I'm using right now. If I wanted to communicate that to you, uh, there's a couple ways that I could do that. I could just blindly, like, blankly stare at you and hope you understand what it is that I'm thinking. It's not going to be very effective, but I can do that and just hope that you get it. I can kind of play charades and act it out and try and hope that I can act out something that's going to get you to the place of, hey, the, the version that I'm using is NIV. I can, I can do those things, or I could just plainly say... The version that I'm reading from right now is NIV. If I want to most clearly communicate something to you, clearly communicate a thought that I have, clearly communicate to you something about me, one of the easiest and quickest ways to do it is to talk, right? to send my word, to reveal that about me. Okay. Hang on to that. We'll come back to that later. When we're thinking of God's word, Obviously, there is so much that we can say about God's word, characteristics about God's word. We can say, you know, God's word has the power to create, uh, you know, something from nothing, as we see in Genesis. Uh, God's word has the power to destroy and to tear down. Uh, God's word has the power to bring life from death. Uh, God's word can, uh, you know, has the power to convict us. It has the power to comfort us. Uh, you know, to the prophet Elijah, God's, God's voice came as a gentle whisper. Uh, but to the prophet Jeremiah, the word of God was like a fire in his bones. Uh, and it was like a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. To the prophet Ezekiel, it was sweet like honey. 
that God's word can bring peace to a raging storm and terror to one who opposes him. Uh, God's word, the written word, is breathed on. It says that it's God-breathed and useful to teach and equip us and to train us. It is the sword of the Spirit which we use to combat the devil's schemes and his lies. That God's word is all of these things. And of course, there are so many more things that we could talk about, about, again, characteristics of God's word. But from these verses that we read from Elijah, or excuse from Isaiah, we see that God's word is eternal. God's word is eternal. Okay? When God is speaking to and through Isaiah, you see how he's kind of comparing the grass and the, and the flowers, and he's kind of comparing and contrasting that to his word. He says, grass withers, the flowers, they fall. They're affected by seasons, right? When you think of just grass by itself, when you think of, when you think of flowers, these things are affected by the seasons. When it gets super hot outside, grass can wither, grass can burn. When it's too, it gets super cold outside, grass can freeze, grass can die. In its relatively short time span, in its relatively short lifespan, eventually, Grass may grow and, and fall and grow and fall, but eventually it, it dies and stays dead. And Elijah, I keep saying Elijah, and Isaiah is comparing that. He says, people are like that. Grass is like that. People are like that. You know, we, 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 we change throughout the seasons. We grow, we fall. Eventually we die. But he says, but God's word is unlike that, is nothing like that. Not in the slightest, but God's word is eternal. God's word is eternal. Not only is it eternal, but it remains constant throughout eternity. It remains the same. That God's word, you know, God never speaks something and then comes back later. He's like, oh, shoot. I didn't know this. You know, I, I just learned something new. Therefore, I have to go back on my word. Or, you know, you know I kind of, you know, I was, I was a little upset then and I'm going to change my mind now. Or I was feeling this, you know, some type of way here, but now I'm not. It's like, God's word is not like that. God's word is not like us. God's word is not like the grass and the flowers of the field that withers and changes, you know, with the seasons and dies and so on. No, God's word is fixed, eternal, and it remains the same. Jesus says, if you guys remember the story uh, when he's speaking with, uh, he's speaking to this crowd and he says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I did not come to abolish the law, right? The, the, the Hebrews, when you go through, you know, uh, Exodus and Leviticus and so on and so forth, when you go through those first, uh, the, uh, not Genesis, but the next four books of the Bible, we see this law of God being revealed to his people, to the Israelites. And there were all these laws that dealt with sacrifice, that dealt with justice, that dealt with, you know, day-to-day -day living, all these things. And Jesus, when he came, when he says, I've come to bring a new covenant, a lot of people had beef with him. A lot of people had an issue with him because they're saying, oh, you're just trying to throw the Mosaic law out and you're just trying to say that it's, it's invalid and this, that, and the other. And Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to throw it out. I came to fulfill it. Why is it that if Jesus is going to bring a new covenant anyways, why is it that he can't just abolish the old one? Why is it that he can't just throw it out? Because his word is eternal. You can't just delete an eternal word. You can't just get rid of an eternal word. You can't just get rid of it like that. The only thing you can do with an eternal word is fulfill it. It's the only thing you can do. So Jesus can't abolish the law because the law of God is eternal. He can't just throw it out. He can't just get rid of it. No, but he can fulfill it. 
That's why we don't have to do all these sacrifices, because Jesus has fulfilled that requirement for us. He didn't just get rid of it, he fulfilled it. And that's very important, because his word is eternal. His word endures every season. It's able to speak in any season because it's unchanging. That's why we can trust his word. That's why I can always come to his word. That's why I should always come to his word. That's why I don't have to think, okay, you know, following God's word and and, and studying God's work, that's something that the ancients did. That's something that's archaic. That's something that's, no. It's outside of that. It's outside of time. It's outside of season. It's outside of all those things. God's word is eternal. I can always come to his word. I can always trust his word. I can always go to it knowing that it, what it speaks is true and good because it's eternal. So God's word is eternal. Second thing, the author of the word. If you were asked, if you were asked the question, who is God? If you're asked that question, And all you have is Isaiah chapter 40. Let's say all you have is Isaiah chapter 40. You don't have the rest of the Bible. You're you're, you're brand new to it. You you have never read any other chapter in the Bible. If all you have is Isaiah chapter 40, and you're asked the question, who is God? You're going to have a lot to say. For example, according to Isaiah chapter 40, we didn't read these verses, but I'll just tell you. But I invite you to go ahead and read these. We learn from Isaiah chapter 40 that God is the creator. Isaiah says, or the Lord says through Isaiah, Did you not know, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the, he- the ends of the earth? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these starry hosts? It's the Lord. Not only is he creator, but he's big. He's very big. The Lord says, Who has marked off the heavens with the breadth of his hand? And who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or weighed the mountains on the scales? He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket, and he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. The people are like grasshoppers. I love the one where it says, uh, you know, he has held, who has held the, the, the dust of the earth in a basket or measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Like imagine all the dust on the earth Imagine all the waters of the earth being measured just with the hollow of your hand. He says, who has weighed the mountains on the scales? If you've ever traveled, especially internationally, you've got to take your luggage. You always have to, you always got to weigh it, right? Because if you go a single pound over, they're going to charge you an arm and a leg to go over. I always imagine, whenever I read this verse, this might be weird, but this, this is me. I always imagine God like at the airport and what is he putting on the scales? Mountains. He's like, this is my luggage. Isaiah is using this imagery. Isaiah is using this kind of poetry to, to, to paint this picture. God is really big. He's really big. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Apparently, the heavens aren't big enough to be the canopy of his tent, so he has to stretch them out. So he's big. God is not only creator, not only is he big, but he's also very powerful according to Isaiah chapter 40. It says, He who brings out the starry host one by one calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He will not grow tired or weary. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. The sovereign Lord comes with power and rules with a mighty arm. 
So this God who has created all things, this God who is big, this God is powerful. He who created all the starry hosts knows them each by name. And because of his power, not a single one of them is missing. Not a single one goes unaccounted for. Not a single one is lost. Not a single one is, is lost on his radar or anything like that. No, he's, he's big and he's powerful enough to, to not only create, but to sustain all of his creation. There's something like 100 estimates, 100 billion to 400 billion stars within the Milky Way galaxy alone. And there's something like millions upon millions of galaxies that are out there, each containing millions upon billions of stars in each and every one. And it says that not only does God create each and every one of those, but because of his mighty power, every single one of them is accounted for. Every single one. This God is wise. According to Isaiah chapter 40, he says, Who can instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? No one. The Lord didn't go to somebody to learn. The Lord didn't, you know, like, I need to gain wisdom. The Lord didn't go to someone to gain it. No, wisdom begins with him. Knowledge begins with him. This God alone is worthy of worship. Isaiah 40 says, With whom will you compare God? To what idol will you liken him? Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. What Isaiah was saying this, if you go to Lebanon, uh, if you, if, you might have even seen this phrase in, the, uh, uh, in your Bibles, uh, talking about the cedars of Lebanon, the trees of Lebanon. That area was famous for their trees. They used them a lot for, for fine craftsmanship, for tables, for, you know, for buildings, this, that, and the other. Right? And so this area was known for its amazing trees, for the quality of the wood. And there was, there was in abundance. And what Isaiah is saying, he's like, you could cut down this entire forest and take all the animals within this forest and you could set them all upon the altar as a form of worship, as a form of sacrifice to God and it wouldn't be close to being enough for him. Only God alone is worthy of worship and you could do all the sacrifice you want, you could do all the burning you want and it, it, it won't be even close to being enough. And this God is the only one worthy of worship. This God also loves. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. So this God who is so big and so powerful and so mighty and so worthy of worship, and, and this, he alone is the one, the one true God. He alone is worthy of it. But this God who is so, like, when you, when you see this picture and you kind of get this picture of, like, gee, this God is big, this God is powerful, this God is, like, this God, you might be, like, afraid to approach him. You might be afraid to speak with him. You might be afraid to, to have some kind of relationship with him. And this God apparently is also like a shepherd who carries his people like sheep close to his heart, in his arms. It's this God who speaks the eternal word. When we're talking about the author of the word, it's this kind of God who speaks this kind of word. And the reason why I wanted to point that out is when someone like that speaks a word like this, oh, we better be paying attention. We need to listen. If a God like this, who is so big and so powerful 
and so mighty and, and so worthy of worship and so loving speaks a word that is eternal, that is constant, that is fixed, that is true, always, if that's the kind of God who is speaking this kind of word, then we ought to be paying the closest attention to what it is that he is saying. We can't afford to, to miss what it is he's saying. We can't afford to minimize what it is that he is saying. If that kind of God is speaking this kind of word, we need to be listening to him. We need to spend time in the word. We need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time listening to him. Because a God like that speaks this kind of word, an eternal one, one that's fixed, firm, unchanging, always. And finally, the word made flesh. So, again, as we're trying to get a clear picture of the church, we're trying to get a clear picture of what is the church, of what's important, you know, to the church. Um, as we're now, again, looking at these pillars that, that stand within the church. You know, we've been, we've been looking at that. We've, we've, we've said that our foundation of the church is Christ and that without the foundation, these pillars, you know, they won't stand. Um, earlier, if you guys remember, uh, I said that uh, someone's word is revealing, that any one of our words can be revealing. You know, it can reveal our character, reveal our thoughts, reveal, you know, our emotions, our plans, etc., etc. When you go to John chapter 1, John begins that book saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. And to those who believed in Him, to those who, who said He is who He says He is, to those who believed in Him, He gave the right to become children of God. Who is it that is sent by God into the world when it came time to fully unveil the plan of salvation? Right? Who is it that came into the world to clearly reveal God's thoughts, God's plans, God's heart, God's love, God's justice? Who is it that is sent into the world? The Word. We said that a person's word can be revealing. A person's word can reveal their heart, their thoughts, their emotions, right? If I want to say something about myself, or if I want to reveal something about myself, the quickest and easiest way to do it is to send my word. That which embodies me, that which describes me, that which you know, tells you about me. So who is it that God sends when it came time to fully reveal who he is, his plan, his love, his justice, all those things? He sends his word. Jesus. There is no church without the word. There is no word without Jesus. There is no church without the word. There is no word without Jesus. Jesus is that eternal word. Jesus is that which perfectly expresses who God is, his thoughts, his plans, his emotions, everything. Why? Because he himself is God. When Jesus was having this conversation, I'm going to wrap up with this. When Jesus was having this conversation with these religious leaders in John chapter 5, 
he says to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think in them there is life, but these are the scriptures that testify about me. His argument with them is this, is like, you guys have been pouring over the word of God. You guys have been pouring over it again and again, and you've committed so much of it to memory, and yet it has failed to testify about me. It has failed to point you to me. We need to spend time in the word. We need to dedicate time to study the word. We need to dedicate time to come to church and to hear the word of God. We need the word of God in our lives constantly. We need to take time throughout our day to meditate on the word. We need to do all of these things. We should commit you know, uh, passages to memory. We should commit and say, Lord, I need this word in me. I want to study. I want to know. I want to hear from you. But your diligent study of the scriptures isn't supposed to, to, you know, just, isn't like just a homework assignment just to say like, okay, I've done it now. Now, God, you will listen to me. Now, God, you will hear me. No, our diligent study of the scriptures is supposed to testify of him. It's supposed to point us to him. It's supposed to reveal him. We spend time in the word and we spend time, you know, pouring over the word because we want to know him. Simply because of that. I spend time in the Word. We spend time in the Word saying, like, when I get a glimpse of who He is, okay, again, if this is who God is, He's a God that's big and He's a God that's loving and He's a God that's, that, that's, that's powerful and He's all those things and He speaks a word like this that is eternal, unchanging, fixed, always good. When I get a glimpse of that, there should be something within me that says, I need more of this. I need more of this. Where there is a heart hungry for God's Word, God's voice will be heard. So we pour over the scriptures. We, we, we pour over the scriptures because Christ, it points us to Christ, the word made flesh. It reveals him to us. He begins to speak to us. He begins to tell us, this is who I am and this is who you are. This is who I've called you to be. This is my plan for you. This is my, this is my plan for me. This is my glory. This is my church. This is what I am doing. So we pour over the scriptures to know him. First and foremost, to know him, the one who became flesh on our behalf. We're going to take a few minutes to pray. And I just invite you guys to pray <clears throat> uh, just for that hunger. Uh, just that the Lord, I want to know your word. Your, your word also tells us that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that God's word is food for us. If we don't have that hunger, if we don't have that desire, and I'm not saying you're always going to feel like it. I'm not saying you're always going to be like super revved up and excited to, to read the word of God. And even then we can still have the, uh, the capacity, the ability to say, you know, tell the flesh to shut up and say, I'm going to read this anyways. Why? Because I need it. But there is also though, there is those times when you are excited for the Word of God, when you are hungry for the Word of God. And if you have never experienced that, if you have never felt that, if you have never been, uh, you know, like, Lord, I, I need this, I want this, we're praying for that tonight. That, Lord, I want to know you for who you really are. And apparently it's through this, by the power of your Spirit, that you're going to teach me. It's right here. God chose this infinite God, this eternal God, this really big God, chose one book, to reveal himself in. So if a God like that can be revealed in a book like this, oh, this book must be good. This book you know, must be alive and active as the word itself tells it.
tells us it is. It's got to be speaking. It's got to be alive. It's got to be teaching, even now. And so if we don't have that hunger, that's what we're praying for tonight. That Lord, teach me. Speak to me. Make this make sense to me. And even when it doesn't make sense, I promise you, He's a God who speaks. There's one thing you take away from tonight. He is a God who speaks. 